Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me as always is that evil anthologist, Jeff Goad. I have no idea how to respond to that. I don't know what an evil anthologist would say. I'm going to publish your books whether I have their rights or not. (laughs) (laughs) And this week, uh, speaking of publishers, we are very honored to have joining us Ian McGarty, co-publisher of Silver Silver Bullet Games, which is known among for among other works, Creeping Cold, The Undying Orbs Omnibus, and the upcoming Fantastic Geographic Zine. Hello, Ian. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, welcome to the show. Welcome yeah. to the pod. Thanks for coming out on a uh, lazy, uh, lazy Monday evening. Uh, so, Ian, uh, what's your secret origin story with games and speculative fiction? So, <clears throat> games uh, were kind of bestowed upon me uh, by my grandma at my grandmother's house one Cape Cod summer by an older cousin who just was leaving for college and brought two milk crates full of Dungeons and Dragons books. So from, from there, that was, I was off, uh, all first edition stuff, like really, really great stuff, uh, that kept us going for, for years of gaming. Right. But, um, the speculative fiction was before that I was always a sort of avid reader. I moved around a lot as a kid. So I, I, we just always had books. Um, mm-hmm. so I'd bumped into some of the appendix and stuff before that. But uh, like even as I found the D and D stuff and discovered new lists of books to chase, uh, I I definitely was already into the Edgar Rice Burroughs and Jules Verne, um, that that kind of stuff. I, I've enjoyed quite a bit sci-fi and and uh, fantasy and and that sword and sorcery, swords and wizardry mix. Right. Did you have that sort of the cold start of just looking at these mysterious gaming tomes or did your cousin actually sort of lead you through a few games or was it, what was your sort of process of, it, you know, like he really just like just kind of dropped them on me after a dinner and disappeared. So, <laughs> so we, we just kind of had them and, and uh, you know, started like anything. Uh, he, he had left all like all his characters were there. We found like campaign notes uh, which kind of gave you the skeleton of like how to organize it as a DM, which I found was probably more helpful than just the books alone. Yeah, because uh, sure. yeah. like someone's home campaign was like in a little spiral notebook, uh, and it was you know probably like a couple of years of their gaming. So it was neat to to find that and kind of say like, oh, like this is kind of the important information, the stuff they teased out. I think that made mm-hmm. a big difference in being able to learn and figure it out. It seems like doesn't matter how well the what is a role playing game portion of a of, of some kind of a gaming guide is. Sometimes we really need to have it modeled. Not even sometimes. Almost always we have to have it modeled to some degree before we really know like how to approach this thing that we call tabletop gaming. Yeah, I, I think my brother got it quicker than I did. He's a little older than me, and he, he just said, "I want you to do this Conan comic book, and I'm going to make a dude that's Conan." just do the comic book and it was like oh okay like that, that, this makes sense <laughs> like, like, uh, so, right. so I, I even now probably i i design some some comic booky style like plot plot wise uh 
sort of adventures. Right. Now, Jeff was mentioning, uh, speaking of modeling, I happen to know that you also run games for um, students in uh, in your practice, right? In your uh, as a your outside practice. So, is that something that's really important to you as part of your practice, or just an extra thing that you uh, you know like that's, to do? That- it was a nice crossover, right? Like, mm-hmm. like bringing something I enjoy. Yeah. So right now I run uh, a game at uh, a school that's it's kind of a lockdown school for boys, um, but it's it's really great because I do a lot of I'm a speech pathologist, so I do a lot of social language things, um, and I can like make a fake real world that they like they have intrinsic value in magic items and. Uh, stupid made up gold pieces the same way we do when we play these games and they're like super excited about. Um, so, and, and you can shoehorn in any language goal. Like I have a student who works on articulation and uh, that's what he does to juice his spells, right? Like I give him extra points of damage depending upon how many clear <laughs> words he utters. Uh, so it's really tangible and immediate for feedback. It, it works well. That's great. That's amazing. At what point did you, you know, going through this whole process, think, oh, I want to be a games publisher at some point, you know? Probably uh, my my friend Rocky, like he's, he kind of has a goal to produce a mega dungeon and, and it seemed ephemeral and far away. And I was like, no, like this is a problem like any other. We could break it into small chunks, like figure out the skills we need mm-hmm. um, and, and get there. And I think we are like at this point, like mapping was one of our problems, but at this point I, I do most of our maps and actually you can look in Ed Greenwood and Alex Kamer's new book, that Thay book, or all the interior maps are, are mine there. So that wow. was, was, was pretty exciting to be able to like draw some maps for Ed Greenwood and, and uh, Alex Kamer in a book like that. Yeah. But, but yeah, we just kind of made a checklist and started doing the things that we think we need to do to be able to publish this mega dungeon that he's got a goal of. Mm-hmm. And I remember some of your other conversations talking about like, this is the way it's just also just sort of developing those skill sets as you go along, starting with these smaller projects, say, okay, and then seeing what the holes are where you might need to bring in other collaborators, what have you as, as needed as well. Yeah, I think, um, so I'm, I mean, I'm proud to say that we've never lost money on the, on a publication which I don't think many role-playing game producers can actually say. Um, so, so, and and I it will continue to be that way. So, like, even now, Fantastic Geographic is finishing up tomorrow. So after this, this is two. So let me, let me get my time right. We're finishing up three weeks in the past. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, but, right. like, we've already paid our artists and our print costs and have enough to, you know, sell a few after uh, when, when we produce that. The granted... Right we're not paying ourselves much of anything, but um, that we, we do it because we right. have a good time. Is the goal that. with Fantastic Geographic to then be like a quarterly or twice yearly thing it's a, if it's a really... It, it will. So, like, so this, yeah. the second issue is about 80% written. There's actually... So the zine is great for me because I, I love... You t- talk about game systems. I'm not tied to Dungeons & Dragons. I'll play almost any game system we've got. Um, I like finding weird game systems, looking at the mechanics, the rules... Um, so this, the next issue will have, uh, and this will be kicks that one will kickstart around June. Um, but that one will have, uh, a more Quorg adventure, which I'm excited about. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to have a DCC MCC, uh, one that I've done that, which is kind of like a jungle level with these crazy plants. And like, that one's a lot of fun. 
and right. some temporary mutations too if you get like pure strain people so but they they fade so you your sticklers for the rules can be okay with it in a, in a couple of, you know, few oh, that's days. Fun. But, yeah. but it go. is fun, right? Like it gives the pure strains a taste of a mutation kind of stuff. And, um, but, but yeah, so it, for, for me, a zine is awesome. Cause I just get to be like, oh, like I, this, this cool game system, I want to write something for it. Oh boy. Uh, and I can j- jump around. Like I've already got OSE written. I've got a lot of stuff that I just like written. Right. And I just love the zine form factor. It seems, um, it just, seems very um open to just like getting your ideas out there and it's it's very conversational with with you know the people who are going to be using it so i i really it's, enjoy that it's digestible too like you yeah. can you know read it in in a reasonable amount of time too and see like our goal with it was really just putting a whole bunch of stuff you could almost immediately drop into your campaign at home yeah so, I, I love random rolling stuff, which is why I like MCC. Like my, a lot of my MCC campaign is just me building huge random roll charts. There um, you go. And, uh, but, but we've got some in there that are like, hey, I found a mushroom. What does it do? And you could be like, oh, I got something for you guys. Yeah, go ahead, roll. You, you really want to know what it does? Roll, roll some dice. Um, so, so as a DM, that stuff is fun to just yeah. have at your fingertips. So, Ian, do you have any uh, recommendations for our listeners for things that they can read for gaming inspiration? Uh, sure. I, I mean, okay. So starting right at the beginning with like Jules Verne and the mysterious Island. Um, if you want to see how the environment can be adversary and still be exciting uh, for players in a story, check out that book. Also that book reiterates the other thing, which is that science can conquer anything. Um, and that's, that's a good, good attitude to have, especially nowadays. I'd say Anubis Gates, you guys had a Tim Powers book on there already. Yep. But yeah. I recommend An- Anubis Gates. Um, that that book is great. There's, you know, there are uh, easily half a dozen items you could lift and easily turn into magic items just reading that book. Um, and then what is the one I read most recently? I'd say was uh, Ariadne by by Jennifer Singh, which was really pretty. That was a, a great book. Um, so and it's you know it's Ariadne, but it's so it's like a diary sort of, but it's like live action, but it's the, the Theseus story, but from Ariadne's perspective of like, you know, being this, the princess of Crete as, um, as you know, her sister's being courted by a God and like, it's good. Very cool. Great choices. And, and the mythic, the environmental, the personal, I think these are like three different aspects that you can really sort of latch on to. Boy, do we cool. have a Hygaxian word of the day? Yeah. So this week we are, uh, reading, uh, Peter uh, Appendix N, The Eldritch Reach of Dungeons and Dragons, edited by Peter Biebergold. And there were some good candidates from our book club, but I'm going to go with a word that has showed up frequently in a lot of works, but only shows up once here, which is Lehman, which appears on page 75 in the story The Empire of the Necromancers. So Lehman basically means mistress or... Um, not not particularly consensual, but it is a, a word that appears in a lot of sword and sorcery stories, especially like the Gardner Fox stories, L-E-M-A-N. It's a lover or sweetheart, an illicit lover, especially yeah. a mistress. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, Ian, do you have any uh, interesting words or words that jumped out at you from this book? I mean, it, it's it, this is just a whole bunch of Appendix N stories, right? Like gathered <laughs> from the Appendix N writing. So it's chock full of them. You can <laughs> start on uh, page the, the the very beginning 
how Sargath lay siege to Zerum with Chalcedony. Yes, yep. <laughs> word for silver, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. But there's, it's. I mean, this book is chock full of them. Some great mm-hmm. stories in here. Though. There you go. And normally we also take a look and compare which edition of the book we're working with. But I'm assuming we're all working with the same thing here. Yep, yep. We've all got the yep. same edition. Hoy, do you just want to tell our listeners a little bit about this edition? Right. So we have the trade paperback edition, which is a very nice book, well put together. And inside the cover, there's this sort of classic blue map, like a D&D blue map. Now, one of our listeners, Joe Hoopman, and another one of our friends, Michael Coviello, has the hardcover, which was imported from England. And that actually came with a little miniature um, A Merit story tucked into a pocket there, uh, The People of the Pit, which is an amazing story. But we've had Peter on as a guest in the past, so I'm really interested to see what his definition of Appendix N or what he thinks are are foundational stories. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of choices that go into making an anthology like this because you have some 30-odd authors on Appendix N, and there's only 17 stories in here. And and some of the authors in there aren't Appendix N authors, too. That's Mm -hmm. true. That's true. And that's an interesting choice of why they're included and whether we can make a case for whether they should have been left out or why they definitely need to be in there. Okay, so having said that, what did you think of this collection, Ian? I I mean, pretty great collection from Tower of the Elephant, which I think, you know, who hasn't turned most of that into an adventure playing (laughs) D&D themselves. Um, But there's some, like I said, this was a a lot of repeat of Appendix N material uh, from Fritz Leiber to like really classic, great um, stories. I think... There were some interesting ones, though. Like the, like I said, the, the David Matt. I really agreed with the C.L. Moore edition. Yes. Mm-hmm. Talk about editions. Black God's, yeah, Black God's Kiss. Like, mm-hmm. yep. uh, yeah. Yeah. Having you. some Jarell of Jouari and having some Clark Ashton Smith in there did feel essential. Mm-hmm. It did. It felt like it should should have been there. Uh, so I, I really liked that, and I think it was a great choice. Like for me, at least, C.L. Moore is is like one of the female founders of fantasy sci-fi, like for, for authors and often un, unrecognized in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So that was like, uh, I, when I saw that, I was very excited <laughs> to see that story right. in there. Absolutely. And it was an excellent choice of stories for right. hers too. And then two of the oddball choices were a hero at the gates by Tanith Lee. And then David Madison's, uh, tower of darkness, which I believe did both or just one of them appear in, um, Swords Against Darkness, Jeff. I, I believe they both did. I think the yeah. I think the only non-appendix and authors included in the collection, um, other than C.L. Moore and Clark Ashton Smith, are authors who appeared in the Swords Against Darkness anthologies. Mm-hmm. And Swords Against Darkness Volume 3, for some reason, is specifically cited in the Appendix N. Volumes 1 and 2 are not. But Peter Biebergall did include multiple stories from volumes one and volumes three of Swords Against Darkness in this collection. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, I feel like he leaned a little too heavily on the Swords Against Darkness anthologies. But the stories that were in here that he pulled out for us are fantastic. Because like for Mm -hmm. me, of the stories that I hadn't yet read... The one that I enjoyed the most, my, the, the, the one that I hadn't read that I enjoyed the most is The Tower of Darkness by David mm-hmm. Madison. That story was fucking awesome. I had yeah. so much fun reading that. That really w- was good. The one that, that tickled me that I didn't like was the Ramsey Campbell Pit of Wings. 
Mm. It's yeah. just like a little a little too horror-y, which, which How is about this? Campbell, let's, right? let's 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 explore each of these stories kind of one by one. Ian, do you want to start with the Tower of Darkness or do you want to start with Pit let's, of Wings? No, jump into Tower of Darkness. Go for it. Like okay. That. So starting with Tower of Darkness. Some of the things I really liked about it. First off, I loved that um, sometimes we see gender roles kind of reversed in the Appendix N, but it's kind of played for comedy. And in this story, our main heroes are Diana and Marcus. And Diana is kind of like this like big, tall, like kind of butch fighter lady. And Marcus is her boyfriend, who's like this like little guy who wears like mascara and eyeshadow. And he's just like, I don't know, he's kind of like this effeminate little guy. Right, he's and, got a blue butterfly like painted on his cheek. <laughs> correct. Yes, yes, yes. And it's and it's not played for comedy. This is just like who they are, which I kind of totally loved. And I thought the story was um, was really smart. I thought it was really suspenseful. Um, I, I I just I also just had so much fun like sticking with these characters and exploring this world. And it really bums me out that there are no collections of his short stories in print. Um, because apparently there are seven of these Diana and Marcus stories that were written, or at least, or that were published. Maybe more were written, and I would love to be able to read all seven of these. I think, yeah, I think they would be good. I, the, I think he nails to this the city intro, like like entering a foreign city. Um, like they have no idea what's going on. They're yeah. super confused. Like they're lost, and you could imagine it would be like getting dropped at a strange city you don't speak the land and you'd be you'd end up in a nest of vampires you know yeah <laughs> like before you do it you're like what what is happening here wait a minute um so and i think he he was they were able to build suspense with a lot of the, the little encounters that that did occur as they sort of traipsed around um i i, I liked this story i do i do think it did like kind of twist the stereotypes on their head mm-hmm. um but, and she even has the tragic past of, t- you know, talking about her, her previous lover, but calls right. her by, by the, the previous lover's, lover's name. Lover's name. Yeah, and, she's Terrence, Terrence, yeah. <laughs> and, and he's like, like, I don't know who Terrence is. And I just know that it, she calls me that when she's drunk, but I never ask her about it when yeah, she's sober. Never bring it up. <laughs> okay. Right, I'll just right. roll. Right, right. And I like how they're very supportive of each other because, you know, after that massive, you know, they're running through the temple and then finally it's just like too much for her. And he's like, no, 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 please. Like, just like, just stick with it, you know, (laughs) like, you know, right. Um, And she's like, you know, and and that they're willing to do this suicide pact instead of getting turned into these, you know, horrible undead creatures Um, and that they're very, you know, merciful and genuinely love each other. I, I also love that the vampires, like when they go to meet the vampires, they specifically tell us like they're hanging out. They're like having sex on the divan. They're like doing all this stuff. But she very specifically tells us like they're all young, but none of them are particularly good looking. They're all like gangly and like too thin. And yeah. it just reminded me of like being like a teenage goth kid. And <laughs> I just I loved the idea that all of these like wretched vampires were just like underfed, gangly, yeah. awkward teenagers. And I think uh, you actually, like, for me at least, I like, I felt like they were going to die. At what I was like, oh, so we're yeah. going to, and I think we've seen stuff like that in Appendix yeah. N and, and its related pieces before. So I was ready for them to be trapped when they had the door shut and just yep. to, it, it to that be gone. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yep. But they still managed to prevail, which is, it's huh. great. It, it, it was a good book. I agree. Right. I would, I could easily devour the rest right. of those stories. I like the two things I particularly liked about the story. Um, 
like it's not hitting you over the head with it in a way to me it seems also like a story of like the hangover from the end of the the 60s and the hippie era right because that's like all oh, this free love or whatever but no it's not glamorous at all these like these vampires are all skeletal and kind of gross and you know but but um marcus is kind of a little bit of a hippie right he's like a you know you know they're 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 free spirits right they're traveling around doing their thing but this is the downside of it they come to these places and they're not welcome right when they come to this town the doors shut in their face because they're just like you know you know these free and uh, i also like that the downfall of the vampires is the fact that they were just a little too evil and they killed the priest so then they lose track of time because the priest is the one who's like knocking the clock every hour to let them know like you know what time it is right so (laughs) yeah it is yeah that that, which is ridiculous a little bit but (laughs) how do you you kill the vampires you take their clock exactly (laughs) (laughs) you kill the guy who lets them know what time it is yeah well but actually they killed the guy who let them know what time knows know what time it is i guess they just didn't realize that that's who they killed yeah um so now if if we want to we can start chatting about pit of wings you weren't particularly feeling that one Mm-hmm. It could have just been just the monster encounter, right? Like it could have just been him walking in the woods or the jungle, wherever. Like it wasn't even clear the terrain he was in, too. I felt like uh, the terrain shifted quickly um, in the initial descriptions when he's like suddenly like in the wild, suddenly in the like it, it just. Yeah, I don't know. The whole slaver interaction with like for no apparent real reason. Like that whole, there, yeah. I don't even. <laughs> I can't even with this one. Hoy, do you have thoughts about this one? Yeah, I didn't dis dislike it as much as you did, Ian. But I think uh, of the stories, it probably holds together the least. Like the yeah. forest itself is kind of there's like three interesting elements, but they don't quite gel. So this forest is weird because the way the leaves grow, they kind of grow upside down, right? There's these horrible monsters. That's also cool. This situation of coming to the town with the slavers and being enraged by that, that's also cool. But each one of those three, three things somehow doesn't add up to something quite greater. Well, you he know? like kills a bunch of the slavers and then just like goes to town, which like the slavers are sort of at the town. Like it's not right. right. I, I just didn't. I don't know. <laughs> right. Um The one thing I would say is it does share a pretty similar vibe with a bunch of the other stories. And this is this person coming to a town, right? Mm-hmm. That is somehow weird and, and dark. And that's the same with a uh, hero at the gates, right? They come to this town. Something's wrong there. And The same with saying, Stra- Straggler from Atlantis. Straggler yeah. from Atlantis. Yeah. Um, uh, I thought hero a hero at the, at the gates was a, was fantastic, though. Great story. I great really story. enjoyed a hero yeah. at the gates. How about you, Ian? Right. I, I like the hero at the gates. It, it, it's... <laughs> It was it was interesting to have, um, yeah. To me, a, it felt like Conan um, in an episode of Murder She Wrote. It's like it was, he's he's solving mysteries with his broadsword. Yeah, like it was just a, a strange mix of story, but I really liked it. I yeah. think that's one of the ones that could most easily be like ported into an adventure. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. All right. 
the vibe I got off this one and some of those other come to town stories, um, and again, I mentioned this in the book club, was it, it reminded me of like a minor spaghetti western of some sort. Mm. Some stranger <laughs> comes to town and they kind of like, you kind of don't really know what they're doing. They're kind of a little bit languid, just kind of lounging around, like waiting for action to reveal itself. And But you find out that, that the whole time they actually are driving the action because they have some sort of scheme. Um, and, you know, that particular one, in particular, the Hero at the Gates, like there's like three endings there, right? But they're all great. Yeah. <laughs> and I do think, like, Tanithley always does a good job of, like, ty- writing a tight plot. Like, she adds those little pieces before. So, like, you, so, so when he does do his murder, she wrote reveal at the end. So he, like, knows everything. You're like, oh, like, or his, his maybe his Columbo moment, right? Where he's doing. <laughs> Just yeah. one more thing. It's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but so, so it adds up. Like, she lays the breadcrumbs. So it's sort of believable. I mean, in a story as fantastic as that. And it's done in the same way those TV shows make you feel like you should have been able to get it when really you probably shouldn't have been able to get it. But when you look back in retrospect, the pieces are all still there. So yeah. it, it adds up. But you also feel kind of like tricked in a good way. I d- and I do think that uh, Tanithley does a good job of like building um, in, in a lot of her stories, building uh, like that whole layer of like what's real and what yeah. isn't real. And like you're you begin doubting a lot of the characters interactions. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know if how much other t- Tanithley you guys have read, but this is the this only is- one I've read. So this is like the the ta- one of the tamer ones I'd I'd say as as she goes. Okay, uh, she I've goes. read some of the stuff that was not uh, overtly heroic fantasy, like the uh, books of paradise. Yeah, and you know, and uh, which are more like mood pieces. And there's no uh, this is this is uh, you know actually has a plot. Yeah. So, <laughs> so and there's more stories that like follow this character actually that, that that take it through. So like you can sort of continue this adventure if you were if you're interested. But. I do love the treasure too. Like, it's like I don't need all that. I'll just take this. <laughs> like, you'll right. only take a little bit. But like leaves. Right. I don't know. I found that f- funny. Right, right. right. It's like, well, you know, a camel can only, you know, only three camels. You know, <laughs> three camels try to, try to get their head in a feeding bucket. Doesn't work. Yeah, that, <laughs> that was such a great line. Like, <laughs> just that. But um, but yeah, that's. I I, I did like that that story. Right. I did like. It, the layers of curse, the layer, like who's cursing who and who's the cause of it. And yeah. Um, and had a, a clever twist. It, I thought end. it was, yeah, a, a very good selection. And having now read this, do you discern a particular uh, viewpoint or aesthetic on the part of the uh, Peter, uh, Peter Regal, the editor, like this, like, Oh, this is clearly like his, I mean, he was saying in, in the introduction, this is my take on appendix N or my personal appendix. N. so what do you think is his, aesthetic or or take on appendix n that you've gleaned from the selections uh so i'd say he he definitely uh likes and, and if he's using this for his role-playing games he definitely likes to be like entering something foreign right like so in a foreign environment because uh, 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 almost all of these stories except for maybe the the doom for the the lovecraft one where the, the doom the, that came to sarnoff yeah, we're the the, but but um, they're all a lot of them are about like going to a foreign environment and the mm-hmm. interactions that occur there. So right, I definitely saw that, and that's a that's a really good one. And and um, the other thing I noticed that he leans a little bit towards the sort of more sort of um, decadent aesthetic as opposed to the overtly 
I mean, there are still overtly heroic stories like Tower of the Elephant and and uh, the Tale of Hoke, but he leans more to the slightly de- decadent, slightly um, aesthetically baroque end of of uh, you know the the appendix end stories. So, I'm curious, Ian, are there any are there any authors featured in this book that you had really wished there had been a different story selected for that author? Because I definitely encountered that a few times. I think so. I don't, uh, that's so tough, though. Like the Howard story is dead on. Like, oh yeah, nails. Tower of like, the Elephant is a perfect selection. I think. Um, I think including the man who sold rope to no- to the Knowles is a perfect selection for Margaret St. Clair. Yes. Um, I think Turgeon of Mir is a perfect selection for Jack Vance. I think Empire of the Necromancers is a really good choice. I mean, I mean it's an incredible story. I love that story, but I also would have preferred to have seen one that felt a little more D&D to me. And when you've got the tale of Satampro Zempros, I'm always saying his name Satampro Zeros. Yes, Satampro <laughs> Zeros. Since that, I, I've never read a story that felt more D&D to me than that. And then the other, the, and the, and this is, this is a, a nitpicky one, but I'm not happy with the choice of Jewels in the Forest. I get why it was chosen. I love Fafford and the Grey Mouser, and I get that this is like them going into a dungeon. So it makes a lot of sense to me. But I really wanted a Lankmar story. I wanted Bazaar of the uh, Bazaar of the Bizarre or Lean Times in Lankmar or something where like they're in Lankmar and they're stealing stuff and like shit's going real south. Like that's... mimics. We we get it. We get it. <laughs> All right. And and Jeff, I totally get it. And because Lankmar is such a distinct character, it's a character in itself. Yeah. And I think Jules is an outlier, too, right. as, as the stories yeah. go. Yeah, I agree. Um, that that it's it's sort of, I, I, I can see what you're saying, it's not that classic, like, Pfeffer and Grey Mouser that, that we're yeah. ex- expecting um, from those. Right. So, but 100%. The, the the reasons why I think he made the choice is that he tends to lean towards the not if not the earliest appearance of the respective characters like one of the earliest ones the Tower of the Elephant I think is like the third Conan story um, same with Dreaming City it's like one of the earliest I think it's the first Elric story right yeah and that's the so, other one I have an issue with I would replace it with any story where it is Elric and Moonglum side yep. by side having an adventure. I forget the name of it, but the one where they were finally at the very end, Elric opens up the tome and it crumbles to dust and the jewels fall to the ground. Right. I forget oh, the name of that one. That's the one with the, uh, with the girl who has no wings. Yes, have, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. I think that would have been perfect where the Dreaming City is just so grand in scope and we've got all these like big wars going on and armies. It just didn't, fe- I just felt like there were so many better choices. But also, in Peter Biebergall's defense, though, I also feel like if I had curated this and I put all the ones I wanted in there, just as many people would have major issues with my selections. Because I I feel like this collection is a fantastic primer for people who don't know what the Appendix N is and is looking to understand the eldritch roots of Dungeons & Dragons. But when it's people like us who are lovers of this and have consumed a ton of it, of course, we're all going to have nitpicky criticisms and things we would have done differently had we been the one to do it there's so much in the dreaming city of like layered elric where you're just like getting way too much elric backstory i think Mm. that it was like an almost an overwhelming story for uh, like a short story that's supposed to be something that 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 should be able to take you to D &D. yeah i I would agree that like the same way that we'd want one of the adventure stories of elric 
um, much more than we'd want the dreamings. Right. <laughs> right. So the the only uh, so um, as I was saying the and I, I basically agree from a reading point of view, but from an anthologist point of view, I, the reason I think that these were, if not the perfect choices, were still very good choices were for two reasons for me. Uh, again, they're early on the development of the characters. So um, secondly, um, for the Fafford and Grey Mouser ones, you could see I could see like, well, Lankmar is such a character, but there's so many stories, as you talked about, Ian, of someone coming to a city already that it was good to have one where they're not in a city. Um, and then conversely with the Dreaming City, then we're adding on this. It's the only one that sort of actually resembles epic fantasy out of all these stories, right? This is that's actually epic in scope. The rest of the stories are much more grounded sword and sorcery. And so this is the first one that has like super, super powerful magic on the part of the protagonist, you know, elemental summoning and all that stuff like that. And this weird decadent civilization. So from the reader's point of view, I totally agree with the both of you. Uh, from an anthologist's point of view, I could see why they're included. I'll, yeah, I'll I'll argue that how Sargoth lay siege to to Zareb did that same epic magic thing just right out the gates though. Like, right, right though in like four pages. Yes, <laughs> this is like, boom, like right, super huge magic and right. it's done. Right, and it's a great like you know Lynn Carter usually gets bashed a lot, but this is a really good piece. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a good, effective Dunsany style piece. You know, yeah. so absolutely. So transitioning this over to a gaming side of the conversation, um, I guess the first place I want to start is I want to challenge an assertion that Peter Biebergall makes in his introduction. Um, Peter Biebergall says something along the lines of, if you're looking to figure out why Gary Gygax wrote the rules the way he did, you're not going to find that in the appendix end except for Jack Vance. I don't totally disagree with that statement. I would as well. Yeah. Because there's pretty clear play about like... Many, many of the rules in many of these books you can see, like even like the episodic, like the stories that he's choosing aren't really books in many instances in Appendix N. They're short stories. Yeah. Like that's mm-hmm. like the episodic nature of our campaigns and our gaming sessions, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it. like for me, at least I, I could totally see Gygax thinking like, oh, we could do this in like five, four to six hours on a Friday night, guys. <laughs> we could like right. play out the story like this. Absolutely. Um, and mm-hmm. you don't need to look any further than Harold Shea to see where they, where he got material and somatic components for spells. And like, I mean, literally the gaming words that Gygax uses are found in these stories. And that's kind of part of the fun of like reading these and finding those little nuggets and mining those out. Mm-hmm. And this, the archetypes are right there. I mean, obviously the fighter is the most common one and mm-hmm. we have, but we have, you know, the Vantian magic system. But again, we just still have actual wizards in here. And then, I know the thief doesn't appear until what Greyhawk is that right? A thief Give me a character break, though, like yeah, like and yeah. even when the thief does appear, it's yeah. it's he's casting scrolls at high level, like right, like, yeah. like it's, right. How can yeah. you say so that's, that's, that's not? Yeah, that's Kugel, right? But right here, and people are like, oh, the thief and didn't Mouser. exist, right? Yeah, and Mouser. It's Mouser people are like the whole time, right? They're saying, oh, thief didn't really exist in the fiction, but it's right there. Taurus of Numidia is a thief. Mouse was a thief, and then obviously Satan Prozeros in the Clark Ashen Smith stories is clearly an archetypal D&D thief, right? They're there. And also, if you play a a thief based on the way thieves were written in Whitebox or in BX, yes, they have a D4 hit die, but they are leveling up so fast that they are 
on par with fighters when it comes to yep. hit points. Yep. And in most of those early editions of D&D, they can use any weapon. So you could also right. run around with a battle axe and be a thief, uh, but, but you're but limited to leather swords. armor. But that yeah. still means like Conan, you can play Conan as a thief in old school D&D. And, and only magic swords, right? Like right. so, and that's yeah. almost straight from the literature when you look at like a lot of these heroes, right? Magic, mm-hmm. magic swords. Absolutely. Uh, um, I, I, yeah. There's, there's a lot. I don't. I, I think that that was like a, a flimsy premise that it, that it doesn't <laughs> come. <laughs> yeah, and I don't blame him for it. I, I, there's, there's a chance that he hasn't read some of those things that make it so clear. Like when you read the first Kothar book, it's like, oh, well, there's where the lich comes from. And if you haven't read the first Kothar book, you might not know that. Um, so he, he he might not be aware of some of those things, or maybe he was making a statement that he wasn't fully prepared to I mean, back up or right. whatever. Yeah, possibly all of the above. And possibly that that statement is not directed to, again, the likes of us. That's maybe exactly. directed to the people who are playing something, for example, fifth edition, where the line is harder to draw between these stories and what, the current form of D&D, you know, more resembles, which is a little bit more epic. It's a little bit more, um, you so know. You should be system specific. You should say, this is, may not be the, the fifth right. edition, <laughs> whatever. Well, it seems is. like, you know, um, you know, that magic is more of a technology as the editions increasingly progress. And it's less mysterious than it was in like, you know, white box, you know, in my mind, maybe, you know, maybe by the time AD and D's come around, it's more of a technology, but you, you know, you clearly never, never happened to cross any Arduin or anything like that. Then. That's true. And, <laughs> or, or, or never barrier, barrier peaks. I mean, yeah. Mad, well, no, magic, I'm not talking about, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not talking about not having science in your game. I'm just talking about the magic itself as a substitute for like, you know, Oh, continual light instead of flashlights. You know, that, that kind of thing like that. Oh, yeah. oh you know. so like a ubiquitous yeah. magic world or it's just... Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I, totally, I'm totally down with, you know, getting the chocolate and the peanut butter. I know yes. some people aren't, but... <laughs> but Hoy and I are absolutely game for that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Ian, while you were reading these stories, was there anything that you're just like, oh, this is so cool. I want to steal this or I'm inspired to do this thing in my games or in my game design? Um, so I definitely liked, and even I, I, I shouldn't even say I trashed on Ramsey Campbell story, but I liked that he had like the, the different ages of, like he had the, the creatures, right? These winged creatures. And then he's like, Oh, the feeble and old ones are all just still crawling around, which is a a really cool way to think about like a monster layer encounter that like, Oh, they're like, Oh, they're just flying around. Let's get to the safety. And then you're like, Oh no. There's yeah. like the floor is covered in like all these blind ones and it's still a fight. So I, I really, I, I will likely do something like use that layered ecology kind of thing um, in something. But I mean, I think I turned T- Tower of the Elephant into an adventure when I was like 12. So yes. <laughs> like who hasn't done that? Right. 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 But what you're saying about the monsters in uh, Pit of Wings dovetails nicely with the thing that I was talking about in our patron book club prior to this, which is the thing that I was really inspired by these stories is just how smart the writers were with their monsters. And it encourages me to be smarter with my monsters. And my specific examples I gave were um, in um, in Tower of Darkness. So we have a town that's got a vampire problem. Okay, so what does a town that has a vampire problem look like? Okay, um, maybe nobody goes out at night. Okay, so we could easily end there. But instead of ending there, he goes on to think, well, like, okay, if they only go out at night, 
how does that affect their culture? They worship the sun. They are sun worshipers. They think the sun is keeping them safe. So it makes sense that we have this town where they're obsessed with the sun. They have a temple to the sun and they worship the sun because in their mind, the sun is what keeps them safe from this thing. So to me, that's a really cool part of using the monsters to like build your world up. The other thing was in Tale of Hawk by Paul Anderson, which was another great story we haven't really spoken about yet. And in it, we've got a town that's being bothered by a really buff zombie. Okay, who is this buff zombie? What, what does this buff zombie want something? You know, and in Tale of Hawk, it does want something. You know, this is a this was a, a mighty warrior who died of old age and was mad about that, and he wanted to die a warrior's death. So he is back and he's wreaking havoc until something can give it a warrior's death. And I just I love how smart they were with their monsters in this. And that's what you were saying about the the pit of wings. You know, they're they're looking at, you know, what does their lair look like? What are the life stages of this thing? It's inspiring me to be smarter with my monsters. I don't think your players are going to disarm before they fight the zombie, though, and wrestle them. <laughs> <laughs> right. Although um, the great thing about this, and I think is is um, uh, one thing that from, again, from um, Temple, uh, Temple, Tower of Darkness, Tower of Darkness. Tower. Um, again, talking about layering there, Ian. So the vampires there are chasing them through the temple and they manage to, like, you know, lose them in the maze, barricade them. So then the vampires go back down and start putting on armor and they climb up the outside of the temple. Right? <laughs> and so they, they are responding to what the... It's not just, like, mindless chasing, right? They're responding to what the players have done, right? And Tale of Hulk, I think, is great. And you're talking about this wrestling. It's like, well, he's tried to hit it with the weapons and it's, it's immune, right? He doesn't have a magic weapon, right? And then... Uh, so what is the other, I mean, obviously we know that D&D always had those really horrible grappling rules and no one's ever solved that for D&D. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe, uh, maybe Douglas, uh, what's his name? The guy who did, you know, dungeon grappling, but, um, but I like it because it, it makes it a very personal primal thing. I mean, a lot of the ancient epics like Gilgamesh, you know, they're all wrestlers, right? So it's nice to see that instead of like the sword solves everything. Right. And it's, you know, it's almost like he has to do it because, he has to get in with his father who he loved and like look his undead father right in the eye and, you know, break his back and, and give him the death that he deserves. Right. Um, and so it's about finding the answer in and the answer is there in the scenario in the game. You always have to put it in there, whether it's, you know, a story answer, uh, uh you know, but it's it's there specific to the scenario, you know? Yeah. And, and I think drop more clues than like, like the, the Tainith leads story wouldn't work for me as an adventure as much because like, like, I mean, depending on what system you're playing, obviously, but like, Oh, if you don't notice the people or you don't know it, like there's just too much to put together without overtly just handing the players the solution. I think I'm going to push back on that a little bit because I love the idea of presenting a monster to our PCs that's way bigger than they could possibly take on. And then they destroy it way easier yeah. than they expected to. And that's going to have them walking away from that encounter going, um, something wasn't right about that. The layered illusion could be used really well in, in, in that too. And I, I think that that story you can pull away is, is those layers, right? Like, so maybe don't have your, your boss monster be the boss monster, right? Like mm -hmm. maybe it's someone else. Maybe it's, uh, even another layer behind that, as we see in the Tenethly story, it's like mm -hmm. she's like 
three layers deep. <laughs> but I, I don't even think you have to go that far, though. To yeah. I think even just having, like you said, some, like, you know, the, the the town is has an illusionary monster that keeps terrorizing them, but it's you know really that sweet old lady that's that's in charge of it, not the rest of the, not some demon, something. Right, like right. Um, and there's a couple times there's that the um, the the um, Gaznak is an illusion essentially too, right? In the la- the very last story, it's the mightiest wizard of all time, which turns out to be this shriveled old man, you know, at the end of a uh, fortress unconquerable. So I, again, I like that uh, layering, as you mentioned. Um, so there's always more, and this allows you to sort of like in a campaign open world setting, they think they've solved the problem. They go off and they come back and then they come back six months later, you know, cause it's the trading route and like, Oh, we thought we solved it, but this town still seems a little off the, you know, off kilter. Like, uh, did, you know, did we, did we miss something? You know, that'd be great. You just, you just empowered the other demon and left the town. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I, I think song of swords is a good one too. If you can want to port things into a games right away. That right. I think that that's there's a lesson to be taken there in regards to magic items that you insert into your games and, and special items that like mm-hmm. if it's something cool and powerful it would have some lore. Yeah, um, right. And, and right think, here it's it's hinting at that it's always going to have a that's like a very Daniel Bishop thing, right? As far as DCC, like always he always has this cool magic items, but there's always a catch, right? And it's like mm-hmm. is the catch like too bad that you don't want to hold on to the stuff? It's really so bad that it's like an AD and D cursed item, right? You guys <laughs> never paired up the. I had like a cleric who had a, a cursed sword in, in the <laughs> old school D and D game, but it was because I had the ego to handle it. Right? They're like, who's who can hold the cursed sword? They're like, you're the only one who's got the stats strong enough to do it. So yeah, right, you right. just have to like match match the negative to the right person, so it doesn't right, right. feel it as badly. Exactly. <laughs> And so I like, again, as you say, there's just the lore in there and like, oh, well, there's something off about this thing, but it seems like it would be still super useful to have this thing. And, you know, what's, what's, the, what's, the, what's the price? How long are we willing to pay this price? You know, so. And then, the, the, then it makes it a quest, too. Also, if they want to get rid of it, make that a quest, you know, so. And also, I'd like to make a plug for a product Turgen of Mir is such a great story, and I love the Dying Earth stuff. And Gavin Norman, back before he did Old School Essentials, did this booklet called the Complete Vivimancer. And the, the Vivimancer class is a class for old school D&D, and it is fully a wizard who makes creatures from vats. Oh, from bodies, yep. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I played a Vivimancer for about a year, and I had so much fun playing that class. It's definitely very Jack Vance. Also, we said Red Frankenstein. You can do a little Frankenstein with that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a specific character from this collection that you think would be really fun to play as a player? <sighs> Diana would be a blast to play. Yeah. And anyone in anyone in that story would, would be a, a blast to play. Yeah. Um, Diana and Marcus, Fafford and the Great Master. I think uh, Cardios would be fun to I know people were bagging on that story a little bit, but I think Cardios himself would be fun to play. And he's a bit of a bar, he's a bard in the AD and D sense where he's actually gone through like the fighter class and all yep. these other things. He's not, you know, so he's a legit like first edition AD and D bard. Um and I like when he says things, they actually sometimes come true and he isn't really sure why, why, you know, in his songs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think a lot of these would be awesome characters. Almost any of the main characters port in, in, in his selections port quite easily into into classes, like you were saying earlier. Yeah. But 
And also taking a look at how what you're doing affects your environment. I also think the Empire of the Necromancers is a great cautionary tale for things like that as well. You know, if you're playing, if you're playing a character who's raising the dead all the time, eventually yeah. the dead are going to get real pissed off about this. I thought it was just a story about like um, it, it, an older gay couple that broke up and couldn't like reconcile, right? So they just like, went, went to necromantic wars, but it. That was, it's, that story was great talk about building like empires you talk about and layers like like it what is awesome backstory for like a continent like you encounter a village in there like what the like it's just nuts and and there, like rumors of a huge undead city like just everything about their whole little uh desert nation was could would be awesome for for a game you know for us yeah. like even like a like a civilization or like a nation threatening sort of adversary it would be pretty pretty amazing mm-hmm. yeah or using the doom that came to sarnoth as the lore for some city as well kind of at any point in the history of that story it could be a really interesting bit of lore to tack on to some random village in your hex crawl yeah, yeah that's and- true and I didn't realize it was because uh, I'd read this ages ago and I was rereading it and I didn't realize that story was also super science. Because if you look at all those units of measurement he's using there, Sarnath has 50 million people, right? So it's the size of Germany, the city, right? And like the towers are like like eight, like 1,500 cube, or like 500, you know. So it's like they're 1,800 feet tall, the, 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 the towers of the priests and stuff like that. And this wall is like 150 feet wide. So they race chariots along the top of this wall and the wall is like 60 <laughs> miles long. And it's like, oh, wow. This is like, this is a, this is almost like, what's the city in um, uh, the Gene Wolfe book? So it's almost like this. The, the, I don't know, remember the name of it. Um, but so then you can have, again, that accretion of like ancient super science, like, a, like you mentioned, Ian, like, um, like uh, Arduin or anything like that. Ancient super science magic. It's just all layered on top of each other. So that to the point where people can't tell the difference anymore. Well, it's like that one city in in the dying earth um, where they have the people who wear green and the people who wear brown or something. And there's like the the rocket, like there's like the the hover cars. Do you remember what story I'm talking about? Yeah, I was. Uh, it wasn't Thais, uh, but I know which one you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it, they're in that big, giant, empty metropolis from the future, yeah. and they're like right. those columns that have all knowledge and. I mean, you're about. Yeah, that yeah. the the necromancer story too is like the classic necromancer's lament as a PC. Like I was trying to necromance in Tinnereth and they they didn't let me. They told me it was gross. <laughs> I had to keep going. Like <laughs> you know, it's just like like everything about that necromancer story is like the classic. Like we just wanted to raise some dead, but they wouldn't <laughs> let us either. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. right. It's definitely like, yeah, necromancers as PCs in that story, right? Exactly. The necromancers <laughs> are always the victims. Right. And then they get <laughs> and they get and then they get fat and lazy, and that's their downfall, right? They don't even remember how to do the things it's supposed to do. Yeah. <laughs> so it happens when you have that right. many undead taking care of you. Right. And I mean I've seen that a lot just with high level play. Like people just like like can't keep track of what's on their character sheet anymore, so they just do suboptimal <laughs> stuff. Right? Like, oh wait, you should have cast that spell. It's like, well, too late. <laughs> you <know? laughs> You're like, yeah, that's a real Sedozma effect. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, Ian, do you have any final thoughts about this collection, or anything you really wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance to get to? Oh really? I think I, I mean this is a great buy. If you're looking for a whole bunch of appendix and material, I do I do think. Um, 
this is worth worth reading for sure. Mm-hmm. There's some great stories. Um, ag- agreed. I think we're. It feels like we're all on the, the same page regarding um, his like additions from the other stuff with and adding some of these other pieces from the anthologies like Tower of Darkness. Great story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what a great. That's just you know such a. And, and we need to get a, a Madison collection going somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, because I can't believe there are seven of those stories. I I I want a collection. Now's the time to build the. You could you could pull a Peter Biebergall and 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 do like the the David Madison collection, the, the appendix end of David Madison. <laughs> yeah. Exactly for for the for the um, mighty hordes of people demanding such a collection. <laughs> I'd, I'd probably buy it. <laughs> well, I'm glad to know I've got at least three sales. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, you know, although at that rate, I probably would not have your track record of never having a book that I lost money on. <laughs> I wonder what it would cost to license this. Yeah, who knows? Uh, I mean, he does. How much it would? How much of your time it would cost to find out how to get the licenses? Well, I mean, his executor yeah, is uh, Jessica Amanda Simonson, who is a pretty major writer back in her day and, and a known anthologist too. So I would imagine okay. that uh, she's pretty um, selective about, you know how the stuff would get presented. I don't know what that means though, financially otherwise, but <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. You're like how the like, stuff gets presented. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, huh. Yeah. But so uh, what uh, other things, Ian, do you want people to know about? You have any major projects coming up uh, besides fantastic geographic in the near future or anything like that? Oh, we will have, so we were kind of delayed um, by like a, an illness between my partner and I, who are my writing partner and I, so we do have a bigger adventure that's sort of a sequel to our Creeping Cold adventure that's like a 100-page book that hopefully should be out by the end of the the, the year. I had kind cool. of done my part and it stalled, and then we, um, I, I thought it was abandoned, but that'll be up. And yeah, like I said, the Fantastic Geographic, I expect that quarterly. So we're, we're around doing that stuff. You can see me and Jim, uh, Jim Wampler's... Um, Scientific Barbarian, I've got some stuff. Right. And I also do some stuff with uh, Planet X Games, Levi Combs, and cool. Skater Green, Skater Green Productions. Great, great. So if people want to just kind of follow what you guys are doing, what's the best uh, What's the best place to look uh, for you? Facebook, we're, we're both on. I know you guys aren't on that one. Uh, you can find us. <clears throat> I'm not. I don't chase the social media. No, the social very wise, very wise. Too, yeah. too, too, too hard. Uh, but I am like sort of on, on Instagram. I like occasionally go on there and post a bunch of random maps or something i'm working on uh and then stop so the best um, thing is so just I'm, to uh google silver boule and that'll be the way to find out what's that's going. it yeah. and i'm you know i'm ian mcgarty on, <laughs> on instagram so it's easy, easy enough to find and um and ian mcgee on, on twitter you can find us too we look for the silver boule stuff terrific and is uh, this um large uh the sequel to uh, creeping cold will that be a crowdfunded project or is that just getting released direct uh, that'll likely be crowdfunded. It's kind of kind of the common RPG industry business model at this point. Yeah. All right. So we'll keep an eye for that later in the year. And uh, basically, not too long after this episode drops, that'll be the second um, the Kickstarter for the second issue of Fantastic Geographic, right? Is so it'll be yeah creeping up right out there. And which conventions can we expect to see you at, Hoy? Uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's, uh, this year might still be a year too early, but um, one of these years. I mean, TotalCon, I guess, is not that far away because I'm in New York. And what's that one in Connecticut, that, that day one? that um, Tom- uh, ShireCon. ShireCon is not that far away. So maybe I can... Actually, yeah. 
I think uh, I will be at ShireCon as well. So, you so yeah, maybe come down for come up for for that. It's mountain crisp mountain air. You, you go. can't go wrong. So. Yeah, if I get if I get my head straight as far as uh, hanging around lots of people, which is not a thing we all are useful uh, used to that much anymore. <laughs> you know? ShireCon is tiny, so right, that's that's a safe one to start yep. at. That's the kiddie pool size, I think. So, uh, and GaryCon one of these years, so that's definitely on there. And I, I, so the other one, UConn, is that the one that's also up there? That's that's uh, pretty popular. So, Game Hall, Game Hall, Game Hall, yeah. and UConn, yeah. Probably one of the better conventions. Yeah. North Texas is a good one. Yeah. If you want a smaller one that's a little more intimate. So in the meantime, uh, all right. So as far as finding us, uh, we have a Patreon. You want to tell people about that, Jeff? Yes. If you are interested in showing us your support, and please do, you can head on over to um, patreon.com slash appendix and book club. And our patrons uh, get a bunch of benefits they get to vote on the books that we cover. They get to join us for pre-show discussions. We can chat about the books before we get together and meet up with our special guest. And those pre-show discussions, the patron book clubs, those are recorded. And you can also listen to those as patrons. That's bonus material available for our patrons. And I would like to thank Joseph Hoopman, Robert Coleman, Rick Byrne, and Adam Styers for joining us for the patron book club today. I would also like to give a shout out to a few of our patrons. Um, Anthony Tui is our newest patron. Thank you, Anthony Tui, for your support. I'd also love to get a shout out to Stanley Radzuski, Lapis Dusk, Patrick Pilgrim, Angus, Derek Farn, Hyperlexic, Oliver Brackenberry, Bruce Erickson, and Brian Rumble. Those are a few of our patrons that we're giving a shout out to this time. I uh, also want to let everybody know that the Patron Book Club results are in. For episode 124, we are covering Michael Moorcock's The Knight of Swords. So what's kind of funny is what, episode 123 is going to be The Knight and Knave of Swords by Fritz Leiber. And then 124 is going to be The Knight of the Swords by Michael Moorcock. So very samey titles back to back. Hoy, I rumor has it you have our poll for episode 128. Uh, you have the books that are going to be included in right. that prepared. So the theme loosely is London Underground, not literally the London Underground, just London Underground, Secret London. Uh, so the first book is Ben Aronovich's Midnight Riot. The second book is Peter Aykroyd's Hawksmoor. The third book is Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere. And since this is uh, basically an affiliate Michael Moorcock show, uh, Michael Moorcock's Mother London. So please vote <laughs> on one of those four as your choice for episode. What is that? 127? 128. 128. Holy cow. Yes. So there you go. I'm the oddball, so I get the odd episodes. You and you're even Steven, so you get the even <laughs> There you ones. go. So there you go. Those are your choices. Uh, so when this episode drops, you'll have uh, a week to vote on those if you are listening for the first time. If it, This will also be posted beforehand in the Patreon. Okay, and... Uh, Solid choices, mm-hmm. too. Yeah, and these are all ones I've never read before, so I'm really looking forward to. Actually, no, I've read Hawksmoor. So I take it back. Liar. Liar. Uh, me- mendicant. Liar. All of the above. Uh, <laughs> evil anthologist. Evil anthologist. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, also, if you would like to get in touch with us, uh, please do drop us a note at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at appendix underscore n. If you like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It helps people find us. Okay. Any last thoughts, Jeff or Ian? All right. No. Game on. All right. Um. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well said. Uh, my last thought is, Ian, thank you for being on the show. It's been a blast having you on. It is an honor and a pleasure, Ian. All right, everybody. See you in the stacks. Game on. The library is closed. <laughs>